Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of That Was Okay, I guess. A podcast about mediocre or forgotten movies. My name is Tucker. And I'm Murphy. And together we host this podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a 90s movie, so there's that nice little BuzzFeed nostalgia bend to it. Mm. It's definitely different. Definitely of its time. That movie is called The Frighteners. This one was Murph's choice, so I'm going to let Murph introduce it just a little bit more. Okay, everybody. The Frighteners is director Peter Jackson's 1996 horror comedy about a former architect turned paranormal con man, Frank Bannister, played by Michael J. Fox. Following a freak car accident and the death of his wife, Frank discovers he can communicate with the dead. In a total Biff move, he uses this power to enlist the help of ghosts in conning people into believing that their homes are haunted, after which he can then exercise their homes with a toaster oven. After a rash of mysterious heart failure-related deaths, it's discovered that a malevolent spirit is on a murder spree in the town. Frank, sort of Dr. Lucy Linsky, the ghost of Arlie Ermey, and Hot Topic troll doll turned FBI agent Milton Dammers fumble their way through an old murder mystery long enough to convince Peter Jackson to commit to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It is still really funny that this was the movie that Peter Jackson made right before this trilogy that literally mm-hmm. changed the future of Hollywood forever. <laughs> I know. Like, it's, he's done, like, a bunch of, like, so really bizarre. cheap horror films, like, splatter gore horror sort of oh, thing. Yeah. He did oh, yeah. uh, one psychological drama in Be- Heavenly Creatures, almost called it Beautiful Creatures. Uh, he did Forgotten Silver, which was, like, a mockumentary, and then mm. this, and then he makes The Lord of the Rings. It, it- just out of left field like literally this this released in 1996 uh at which point and I, the only reason i know this is because i've seen like all of the appendices all of the behind the scenes stuff with the extended edition blu-rays of lord of the rings um i know you haven't seen those movies but i do suggest yeah, that you i've seen the first one okay 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 okay, okay, okay. um <laughs> obviously having seen that this is much different but like yeah. this releases in 1996 he's already talking with new line cinema at this point I'm pretty sure he's like trying, he's like, he's shopping around trying to get this, this, you know, script for the Lord of the Rings made. And uh, in 1998, they begin production on that. So it's, it's just insane. Like the level of quality between the two, especially is insane. Well, it's like, what did Warner Brothers and New Line see in Peter Jackson's career before this, that they were just like absolutely committed to doing what, like letting him do whatever he wanted on the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy because like, you know, Jackson's career before this is hit or miss. Brain dead is pretty funny. Sure. Uh, this is, Heavenly Creatures as we'll is get good. into fine. Yeah. And, and I haven't seen heavenly creatures and I know that's probably like it. It's got a really good reception beyond you recommending it too. Mm. Um, so like, yeah, he's made some good, some solid movies here, but nothing anywhere close to that. It's all very low budget, very, like offbeat and for the lord of the rings it has to be very very general made to appeal to literally everybody for this to work and also we're going to devote so much money to this and resources and everything to let you do whatever you want because we believe your ability to make a profitable movie so much uh 
somehow the Frighteners, though, made $29 million on a 26 <laughs> budget. And they were still like, oh, no, we'll just give you $100 million for three of these. Yeah, that's that's what's interesting about The Lord of the Rings. And I definitely don't want to derail this conversation about The Frighteners by talking too much about The Lord of the Rings. But Context is important. Yes. What's really interesting about The Lord of the Rings is that the budget was only like $180 million for all three movies. And each <laughs> one of them, I think the first two got close to a billion. And then Return of the King got like a billion yeah. one. I think. Yeah. Something That's, around um, that. I'll say though too, that is 180 million in Bill Clinton money. Yes. Then there's, you know, Bush money, yes. Obama money, and uh, now Trump money, which is basically uh, worthless. Paper napkins. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of, you know, the satin napkins under Obama, because he was smooth. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we miss you, daddy. Anyways. Frighteners. Frighteners. It is really interesting that you said that this had a a twenty six million dollar budget, according to Wikipedia, which, as we know, is never wrong. Yes, absolutely, it is the most steadfast source of information. Um, <laughs> that is really interesting. I'm not necessarily sure what they saw, but you know, New Line Cinema was the only studio that decided to accept the Lord of the Rings. So he had been shopping mm-hmm. it around for years and had to like really make his case in order to make the movie or mm-hmm. to make the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, so I guess, uh, a part of that is, you know, just good old industry networking and connections there. But yeah. honestly, like, I don't, I, I don't know. Cause it's just so it's utterly different. Like in the fellowship of the ring, there are only brief glimpses of that, like slasher core, like this whimsical, like slasher core nonsense that is, is like think brain dead. Yeah, there are very brief glimpses of that. Other than that, it's this majestic, like, incredible piece of work, um, mm-hmm. which maybe is owed more to the subject material than Jackson yeah. himself. But he still he pulled it off. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, he, he still had to write the script. He had to do the treatment. He Fran Walsh and uh, Philip Aboyans did it, I think. So yeah. still. Yeah, to keep this on Jackson just a little bit more, I like how his follow-up projects were still, like, really big. Like, King Kong was huge. Um, oh, yeah. Not just, like, the size of the ape, but also, like, the movie and uh, how it was treated and everything. And the, uh, a lot of people saw that. Uh, but he did, mm-hmm. like, The Lovely Bones, which is, like, you know, it's not good, but it's going back to, like, what he really wants to be doing, I think, in this stage of yeah. his career. Like, he wants to do that sort of thing. And then... <laughs> The Hobbit comes along, which he doesn't even want to do. <laughs> and New Zealand basically was just like, but we need money. Our whole island is going bankrupt. <laughs> How are we going to be able Tori to pay the orphans? The orphans are starving, Peter Jackson. Don't you care about them? And he's like, fine, I'm doing The Hobbit. <laughs> I'm going to do it. And, and I mean, that, yeah. that movie had a, and his, and historically like troubled production. Yeah. Like they didn't have the final treatment for the script done until they were almost like, I think done with principal photography. So yeah. 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 Because like those movies are clearly not supposed to exist in the form that they exist in. (laughs) Yes. I think everybody who's seen them and most people who haven't are just like, Oh, that's way too long for this short of a book. Mm -hmm. And I, I think one, and again, just to continue talking about Peter Jackson instead of the Mm -hmm. movies he makes. um, Yeah. It's, it's interesting though that people compare his Hobbit trilogy to the prequel trilogy, the Star Wars, mm-hmm. um, because like oh well George like they call it like George Luke itis or something like that George Lucas itis, 
where he got too ambitious and he tried to do too much and it's like yeah i think objectively he tried like jackson tried to do too much with the the hobbit prequels or the, the hobbit trilogy um but like that that was like studio mandate mixed together with like a rush timeline like him not being prepared not having like a cohesive vision and shopping this said vision around to studios for years he kind of just had this thing fall into his lap because he was the only one qualified to make movies like that yeah yeah so it's like george lucas like bit off way more than he could choose sure but like that was his crazy his crazy nightmare vision that he wanted to make Mm -hmm. and yeah like i i think peter jackson's like achievements stand on their stand on their own merits because king kong is very entertaining the lord of the rings trilogy is very entertaining i just i don't i don't like the comparison that he's like george lucas where he tanked his own franchise yeah no i i mean that it wasn't even his decision to do it and lucas always wanted to do the star wars prequels in some fashion like yeah so so they're different yeah um so the fight nurse I don't know if that's getting back on track or if the track that we want to be on is just talking around the movie instead of about it anyway. I prefer the around conversations. Yes, circular. This was your choice. Why did you choose The Frighteners? Uh, Well, for one, the the simple answer is that it was on your list, and I remember it from my childhood. I also remember liking this movie when I was a kid, so that's something that I'm not necessarily... I'm kind of wishy-washy on that right now. Um, (laughs) No, but I I wanted to choose a movie that was more horror oriented um i remember this being mm-hmm. scarier when i was a kid so obviously it's yeah. like watching it now it's much more of a comedy than it is a horror yeah everything um, was scarier when i was a kid i cried yeah. at eddie murphy's the haunted mansion <laughs> i think i've still got that like, on dvd physically sobbed <laughs> god i can't remember anything from that movie i wanted to make a witty remark just now but i just I can't remember i wish i could movie. forget <laughs> I really wish I could. <laughs> I think I remember my brother like watching that movie back to back to back to back to back. He loved it for some reason. I don't like so even with that and speaking of like the whole like kids thinking things are scarier than they really are thing. Like I watched that movie I think when I was 8. I want to say that was a 2002 release and the yeah. ending which is the part that made me just like you know <laughs> return within my own body in fear. It was like some like CGI fire dragon that was threatening to kill Eddie Murphy, which yeah. like obviously was not going to happen. And the yeah. dragon doesn't like come out of nowhere. Like it's just there. And I'm just like the, the concept of a fire dragon trying to kill the good guy. Eddie Murphy was so much for me to handle at the time. The dragon's going like, to kill the nutty professor. Yeah, no. Yeah, and, and even now it's just like, I mean, obviously like I'm an adult. So like, kids movies don't scare me but it's like why did i ever because there are some like the scary parts in normal movies didn't really scare me at the time but Mm. that one just absolutely like (laughs) frightened me to hell yeah no i I can sympathize with that speaking Mm. of peter jackson like i remember the first time i watched the lord of the rings fellowship of the ring um when they were in moria and the troll is like breaking through the door at balin's mm-hmm. tomb and i just remember like sh- like i i like begged my mom like i i can't watch i can't watch the giant troll i can't do it mom you gotta let me into the aisle like either that or give me the popcorn bucket so i can put it over my head it's scary we were we were dumb as kids yeah <laughs> i'm still dumb as an adult so least, how did we get to the haunted mansion uh, you were talking about how this scared you as a kid and now we're dumb kids and yes, you know yes. one of us is a dumb adult and 
Yeah, that's, so that's about Peter, it. <laughs> yeah, Peter Peter Jackson Peter Jackson had a habit of frightening me. Uh, <laughs> you could say he is a frightener himself. Uh, he uh, had get out. I know. <laughs> it's like, okay, guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're all done. <laughs> we, we decided to quit. Yeah. iTunes so is I, going under, so we're done. Yeah. I kind of understand it, though, in yeah. a sense. And I think, like, the connecting vibe between, like, my fear from that awful part of the Haunted Mansion and your child, your childhood fear of certain parts of the Frighteners mm-hmm. was that, like, the visual effects are actually kind of good, and I wouldn't say they're good in the sense that they're realistic, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, obviously, this does not look like a real ghost would, whatever that means, you know, like, this doesn't look like, oh, like, oh, that's a real representation of what the Grim Reapers dress up would look like and Mm -hmm. this sort of thing. Um, But what, like, the visual effects are good at is, like, really closely, uh, what's the word, like, really specifically like bringing out the exact effect that the director, in this case, Peter Jackson wants it to. Yeah. There's there's a specificity to how everything works Mm -hmm. in every individual scene. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And everything about how the CGI is used is really, really clear. And Mm -hmm. that I think is owed in part to directorial skill. You see that in a lot of like big budget CGI movies where things are just kind of a jumbled mess for a little while. Um, Mm -hmm. Transformers comes to mind specifically when it's just like hunks of robot punching each other and you can't tell who's who or what's happening for a while. Like this isn't meant as a distraction. It is telling a story with the CGI and it's because it's all well designed and put together well and you know, edited and directed well that mm-hmm. you're able to understand what this is. And I think that what that's what makes it like a decent kids movie, even though I'm pretty sure this is this rated is, R. Yeah, this is yeah, hard so. R. Like, there's a lot of violence and the the Milton character especially like he's he's like Looney Tunes. There's Looney yes. Tunes humor in this movie. Like a, a ghost getting sucked into the uh the the air intake of a car and, and getting pushed out the exhaust pipe. Or getting poked in the head and then deflating. Yeah. <laughs> it's Looney Tunes nonsense, but the movie is like R rated. Mm-hmm. There is there is a graphic depiction of a mass like sh- like shooting spree mm-hmm. near the end of this movie. And it's it's like, especially in today's context, it's like, whoa, this is graphic. But <laughs> but it's also like, oh, well, maybe kids should see this now. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it just reality? <laughs> it bring up something that or two things actually that sure. um I wanted to bring up as like big through lines for this episode. Sure. And one is that this is kind of in a sense very cartoonish, right? Like mm-hmm. 90s offbeat humor was mostly just real people pretending to be cartoons, especially in that Dammer's character, the FBI agent played by Jeffrey Combs, mm-hmm. uh who's the main secondary, I guess, villain of the movie. Sure. Um like it's so cartoonish it's so over the top and it's intended that way uh and it's not something that i personally get a lot of humor out of like i I don't find it particularly funny but it was really big in the 90s and it Mm. definitely adds to that vibe that like hey this is r-rated but like this should kind of probably be for kids right and yeah. I think that's sorry. Part of the uh, the second thing that I wanted to sure. talk about for a lot of this episode was that like this doesn't find an audience because it doesn't fit 
any sort of lane. And they had no idea how to market this as a result. Like Peter Jackson, for the rest of his career, was notably critical of how the studio uh, marketed this movie, what they tried to do, what audiences they went after. And even he's admitted later on, though, that he's like, I mean, I don't know what you would have done. Um, yeah. It's kind of a hard one to market, but... I get that. Like this goes for Tim Burton, but this also goes for horror fans. And, yeah, and you've got for a Danny Elfman score to back it up. Yeah. The, Danny Elfman's there adding to the Burton vibes. Uh, but like, you can't just capture those audiences by having part of your movie be that, especially when you can't even commit your marketing department to just pitching at one of those lanes and mm -hmm. the other four or five showing up as, you know, like, oh, these are happy surprises that get added on that you didn't see in the marketing. Surprise. Yeah. No, I, I'll, I'll agree. Like, this movie is fairly scatterbrained. Like, I, yeah. I don't honestly myself, like, I don't oh, know how I would Because the guy's head explodes. Yeah. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Uh, it's it's like there there are there are genuine scenes of like manic. I guess just insanity. Like, unrestrained insanity in this movie, but at the same time, there are all of those Looney Tunes bits that we, we talked about earlier. So it's, mm -hmm. I don't know how you, would like how you would market this movie where you're dealing with Michael J. Fox, who is this asshole, mm -hmm. like, straight-up asshole conning people. Um, there are adult themes, but the, the, the police officer running, like, the investigation into all of these deaths is literally like barney rubble like he's <laughs> like he's just fumbling his way through the movie and he's making really corny jokes all the way through the movie utterly incompetent and it's kind of like it's it almost breaks the fourth wall with how like with these characterizations mm -hmm. specifically the cop and then this milton character like this mm -hmm. milton character is supposed to be this representation of the occult you know, he's he's yeah, he's been locked something. in. Yeah, he's been locked in dungeons and he's he's experienced all of these these like dark kind of ethereal things that happen in the background or like happen in the uh, the underbelly of society type deal. You know, the the mm -hmm. paranormal and the mysterious. And he's just so over the top that it's there's no way like you're supposed to take this character seriously at all. And we're following this character in the middle of like this insanely violent subject matter where there are these insane people shooting up a sanitarium or sanatorium, whatever it is. It's, it's yeah. like, yeah. it's like, okay. So yeah, I, I don't know how you would market that. Um, uh, like, I think the, the scene that epitomizes the tone of this movie is Milton describing in that that weird cadence that he has uh frank banister's backstory mm -hmm. and like the motivation for the argument that leads to michael j fox and his dead wife like careening off of that cliff that eventually kills the wife it, they had an argument about because michael j fox is an architect and he's building their home she wanted mm -hmm. a garden in an area but he wanted a basketball court so they're <laughs> arguing and it's got the sepia tone and every, like yeah, the yeah. sepia filter it's over it because it's a flashback. And mm -hmm. Michael J. Fox has like this shoulder length hair and he's in like a three piece suit and he's like shooting like baskets while his <laughs> wife is arguing with him. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. there's like this contractor that's just like sulking in the background, giving like these really exaggerated like looks at the camera. Like mm -hmm. the close ups in this movie are just insane. But 
that that's the whole tone of this movie. Like you're supposed to feel sad and sympathetic for Michael J. Fox. This is the the revelation that you know his his character has been looking for forty minutes into the movie. You know, we finally get an explanation of like how he reached this point, and it's whimsical. It's whimsically like dreary. It's yeah. weird. Like I, what separates this from the good work of Tim Burton? Because I think like that's the lane that like the movie is ultimately trying to go for. Uh, at least like it definitely that's uh, what it yeah, should have been in definitely. terms of like, uh, marketing. Like r- rickety skeletons, uh-huh. you know, this kind of oddly upbeat minor key music, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, and like I, what really sets it apart for me is that Tim Burton would always go for the big emotional swings. When it was, you know, funny, it would be very funny. It wouldn't be like, oh, here's a joke about a ghost humping a mummy. You know, like you would go for like real jokes. Like when I he like wanted it to when play, they lie still like that. Yeah. When he wanted Ugh. to play sadness, like he would really go for sadness. And the juxtaposition between the two of those was, I think, like what made up um, like sort of like the ennui buzz that his movies tended to have when they were sure. really good. But, you know, like just everything else about his work, it was that contrast and like the big swings and the fact that he hit most of them. And The Frighteners doesn't really go for much of that. I think this mm-hmm. more wants to be fun than anything else. Yeah, I think no, definitely. Uh, definitely when you involve um, Zemeckis at some level, you're probably going to get more of like a fun thing. And I think that... You know, they probably could have pitched uh, the Zemeckis, Michael J. Fox re-team up post Back to the Future, you know, 11 years later or whatever. Um, But this just doesn't really go for the sadness. And I think that that's missing from the Michael J. Fox character. Uh, I think that that could have even amplified the horror aspects, too, of the idea that, you know, like several years after, you know, your wife dies in a terrible accident that isn't quite what it seems uh you know like you're not able to move on you're stuck in this rut like there should be some sort of maybe pity maybe sympathy maybe whatever Mm. it is to it but you can't just kind of have him coping basically the same way that he was when she was alive yeah yeah, no, I, I, I think I agree with that. Maybe, maybe it's like because yeah. he, he didn't build the house. And the big thing was that, like, he still hasn't built the house, but he mm-hmm. hadn't built the house beforehand. Like, we know yeah. there's there's <laughs> like, like there's one no change. Yeah, there's one line that addresses that uh, the I, he has these two ghosts that like pal around with him. Do you do you remember what their names were? Uh, there was the judge uh, and then oh, yeah, two yeah, of them that, had that, actual uh, yeah. names. Yeah. Okay, there, yeah, there were the two that would do the hauntings. There was, like, the judge who was this rootin' tootin' cowboy type guy. There was a dog at one point, and there, there's a lot of, like, humor around that because, like, the dog steals the judge's, like, jawbone or something. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, like, a Christopher Lloyd type character, the judge. I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah. You're absolutely right. This had a lot of Zemeckis vibes in there, just this whimsical, like, silly nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's one line that one of the ghosts says where it's, like, like man we, we need to stop doing these con jobs and then michael j fox was like no we're gonna keep doing these con jobs 400 bucks at a time and then we're gonna finish this house and he goes you are never going to finish this house and that's that's the that's only like, time but, they but address it like, exactly that's very clearly set like, up um, the, the first time you see him like try to turn the power on on the house yeah. it's like and it's just this this skeleton of a house you know the visual metaphor isn't lost yeah. on anybody but it's yeah. it's like okay 
It's, it's just not a gap that needs to be explicitly filled in. Yes. And I think like the bulk of my issues with this movie are pretty much all in that like first act or maybe even stretch to the first half. Um, there's this like rough setup. And like I even wrote down in my notes and like I'm just ahead of this movie. Mm-hmm. Like I've already figured out the stuff that you're still <laughs> explaining to me mm-hmm. and like the comedic what's the word like the comedic effects of what this world is and so yeah. you're trying to still explain these things to me and you're telling me a joke that i already figured out in yeah. my head based on something you already told me the last time mm. so i'm just like well catch up to a point like <laughs> i'm already like i'm ahead of you you need to jump up so that you're not just telling me the same stuff that i know it, which is really bizarre i completely agree with you but it's really bizarre considering how like quick the paces uh-huh. in this movie like it it moves so quickly like you aren't allowed like i don't think that at any point in the movie there was more than maybe 10 seconds before a cut uh-huh. not that i sat down and counted but it's it's just it's breathless in like the first 20 or so minutes to get you uh-huh. into this plot i mean the scene where they introduce um the 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 daughter that's like you know locked away by her mother in the big haunted mansion yeah d wallace's character there yeah it's they introduce that whole through line it's completely transparent like you know that the daughter is going to be the bad guy like i i felt like that was obvious like straight up just like you said like you're ahead of this movie and just waiting for it to catch up and it's it's just (laughs) it's like it's on a treadmill it's running very quickly but it's not going anywhere (laughs) Now, I, I will say that, like, once the movie does catch up, and I think there is that switch about halfway. The when, fact when that the I, I would is, say it's when Milton shows up that, like, things start to get a little bit clearer. Although, that the, like, the purpose of this movie still, like, even at the end, I felt wasn't defined. Yeah, and for me, I guess the changing point is when uh, the second lead, Lucy, uh, mm. starts to, like, she shows up at Michael J. Fox's jail cell after he's thought of as the main suspect in the murders that's when everything catches up for me because then Mm -hmm. the plot just keeps moving and Mm -hmm. that i like because like oh you thought it was this thing well now it's this thing oh it was just that well now it's this just a couple minutes later that's the sort of thing i like and i like that energy um that's definitely very zemeckis there but Mm -hmm. it's one of the more effective things that he puts into his movies and this i believe was definitely more of a peter jackson movie than uh zemeckis one i know his name's in the uh it's it's in there somewhere uh in the credits somewhere as a producer um but you can definitely see where this is at least influenced by him in some way and it's just because like everything keeps moving like there's you know things happening at the same time they do that little split at the end which i always appreciate when like mm-hmm. the characters go in different ways and it cuts back and forth between like what's happening to each of the characters um but like once it like changes what the plot is in the second and third acts like every five to ten minutes or so i'm just like oh okay well i can definitely get on board with a movie that's set up like that and most of the moves made sense too and like stayed engaging so that's that's definitely when the movie flipped a switch into being entertaining for me when the first half was not easy to get through no i i I agree like um when i was messaging you earlier i said that you know the the last 35 minutes of the movie is probably the best 35 minutes in the movie Mm -hmm. um you know I, i pulled up imdb reviews uh 
well, the, the reviews compiled by Metacritic on IMDb. Um, yeah. And it's one of the reviews says that it's it's that weird movie that just gets better as it goes along. Mm-hmm. You know, and unfortunately, this movie is very, very shaky at the beginning. But like you said, mm-hmm. Peter Jackson has this skill with. I don't want to say action because it's not necessarily action. And I don't want to say set piece because it's not necessarily a set piece because there are so many there. Uh, let's say once they get to the asylum there at the end, like when, yeah, yeah. when, when they break out, um, there's there's a lot of really creative like like movement and mm-hmm. and the way that each frame is shot you know there's there's a visual continuity there that like mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier like you're always aware there's a clarity to how everything is unfolding on screen not necessarily in the logic of it because i i'll stand by that like i don't understand what the point of this movie was if that mm-hmm. makes sense like like at the end of it i, I didn't feel anything i was just like oh yeah. okay but i did mm-hmm. enjoy what i saw at the end yep and I think a lot of that has to do with how creative everything was shot. There's, there's one scene in particular that I'm thinking of um, when Michael J. Fox, he's like phasing between this kind of, he's having flashbacks of, of that massacre in the asylum. That, yes, um, yeah, this was um, definitely one of the high points of the movie here. Yeah. I, I was going to talk about this scene also. Yeah, there, there's one shot where uh, he, he sees Bartlett his name is Bartler, right? The, the guy. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. Um, the, the murderer who's yeah. you know, past and future murderer. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the guy who's, he's like obsessed with the kill count um, mm-hmm. where he's, he's aiming like Michael J. Fox comes up the stairs and mm-hmm. you've, you've got your set. The camera is pointed at the wall. Like Michael J. Fox is like leaning against the wall uh, and it's lit in, in this nice white light that the, all of the, the flashbacks are shot in. Um, it, it's got that fluorescent kind of hue to it and he sees Bartlett and Bartlett fires the gun at someone behind him. Bullets obviously go through him because it's just a flashback. It's all a figment of his imagination or whatever, mm. but you know, keeping the, sh- it's the same shot. Michael J. Fox leans against the wall size and then the whole lighting change, like the lighting changes into that grimy mm. green nastiness. The camera pans to the right and then you see the mm. rest of the grimy set. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I really like, I, even if that was just digital trickery, like I really appreciated that scene just for the visual continuity. Like there aren't these abrasive cuts in that scene. Like it's, mm-hmm. if you're going up the stairwell, you're going up the stairwell. You're, you're not confused where anything is. It, he manages these two timelines and this kind of visual storytelling, um, the parallel mm-hmm. between the massacre back then and, you know, the fight that they're having right now. Or in mm-hmm. in the present of the movie, like I just thought that was really, really well done. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like like you said, like it's not just good visual storytelling. It's also like a nice little bit of like panache there too. Like there's mm-hmm. some flair to that. Like there's like oh okay, so like a lesser filmmaker wouldn't have done this thing. It would have made a different choice. And yeah, it didn't feel know, like, like this movie was just hurrying up. It didn't feel like it just wanted yeah. to wrap up everything and get it get itself over with. Mm-hmm. And so, like, not only is there, like, a level of clarity that that adds, which, you know, always important unless it's a mystery, um, but also, like, you know, one of those rare moments that actually does hint at those bigger emotions that, as I mentioned earlier, like, a locked-in Burton would have gone for. Mm -hmm. And I can't, like, help but think, like, what he would have done with this movie, like, if he was... Uh, interested in the script, I should say, like, if he was really into this material, what he would have done with this movie, I think, could have been 
like one of his best maybe um he was definitely into the whole thing of like blending horror and comedy at this point i think this is around the point where Burton made Mars Attacks, which okay. isn't really horror, but at least has like a the subtext of horror, the pretext of horror, I guess. Um, yeah, when you when you keep talking about Burton and his yeah. uh, the the emotional core of some of his stories, when he really hammers at home, like I the mm-hmm. first movie that pops into my mind with like a horror aesthetic, but also like genuinely affecting is Edward Scissorhands. Mm-hmm. Great you know? movie. Yeah, and it's every time. I, I'm just saying that like every time you you mm-hmm. bring it up I'm like man I keep thinking about Edward Scissorhands because mm-hmm. you're you're absolutely right like when he goes hard on the emotions he does it really really well and mm-hmm. it's I didn't even think about it before but this movie is genuinely lacking in that department yeah and like it wouldn't be necessarily like such a bad thing if like other elements of it worked just a little bit better right like yeah. if it was if it had the structure and the pacing and just the cohesion of the third act, the entire movie, this would have been just a good movie. Uh, we wouldn't really have to even qualify that statement. It would just be good. Um, yeah. If it was funnier the whole way through, I think this would just be a good movie. I think so. I, I mentioned, I think, to you off mic um, a week or two ago that I'm not really a horror comedy fan, which yeah. is funny because. I love horror and I love comedy, but I think when people try to blend them, especially like directors who have some like auteur tendencies, like they don't really go for either necessarily. Like this isn't scary Mm. as an adult, right? Like, I mean, like there's definitely like hints of things that like make you feel uncomfortable, but it doesn't really plug into that either. There's like some Sam Raimi esque, like, just kind of splattery visuals you know it's it's not necessarily horror but i mean mm-hmm. there's no other way to kind of categorize it yeah like it's it's definitely horror but it's not horrifying yeah and actually like bringing up Raimi is a good comparison because i think he's one of the few that does it well like when he does it like his movies are darkly funny for one thing and this isn't a darkly funny movie even when it does go for its jokes it's not mm. dark comedy uh but like Raimi also makes you feel bad when you're watching <laughs> some of his movies. Yeah. Like, there's definitely some fun in something like The Evil Dead when you see, you know, like, someone's head get ripped off and there's just, like, a geyser of blood erupting out of them or whatever. E- but, e- like, emo Peter Parker in Spider-Man 3. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, if you look at, like, uh, what was it? Drag Me to Hell, where, mm-hmm. like, nobody gets a happy ending there. Like, I mean, like, people, like, characters you like just, like, die terrible deaths. Yeah. And, like, it makes you feel genuinely bad which i think is like one effective area of horror like it's not like scary but you know like it's definitely retching and the frighteners doesn't go for that it doesn't go for dark comedy and like when it is trying to be funny it's more in the sense of like asides or like oh this is a funny situation rather than like making you laugh and i think that's just more of that uh, the problem with this movie where it just doesn't want to go for any of these emotions. Yeah. And there are really only a handful of jokes in the movie. Yeah. Kind of like you said, it's a lot of the, the comedy is visual or it's situational. Mm-hmm. You know, it's someone getting sucked into a carburetor or it's, it's yeah. one of the ghosts. I mean, getting sucked into a carburetor. Yeah. It's, <laughs> we should clarify. Yeah. It might be funny if it was a person. Yeah, it, It's or, or a funny accent or something like, Mm-hmm. It, it's it's so rare that like the comedy actually comes from 
the script, if that may, or the dialogue at least. Yep. I, I think there were only a handful of times that I actually laughed in the movie. One mm-hmm. was. Uh, it was the the older guy in the bathroom who died when Michael J. Fox was there, and mm-hmm. he looks up to heaven and he just says, "Mom." And I, I just kind of thought that was funny. Um, it's not. It's like objectively unfunny, but I'm not smart, so I thought it was funny. Um, oh, I saw his mom. But um, and then Michael J. Fox is like having a panic attack in the in the ba- in the bathroom stall right next to it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then uh, Milton when he when he's like grilling Michael J. Fox for the first time, I thought that was a genuinely funny scene where he's like drawing on all of this experience that he had in the occult. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, yeah. One of the yeah. few good comedy scenes for me that made me chuckle because, a few yeah, times it, because it's an actual performance. He's the mm-hmm. only character who like is like gives a performance yeah. in this I mean, movie. It's so ridiculously over the top that like, again, yeah, like, like I said, like a lot of the comedy was stripped out of that yeah. for me because I just, I, I don't get it. Um, yeah, but, but I mean, like I, that you get the sense itself, that he's going for something and he does it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I like Jeffrey Combs. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think he does a bad job. It's just that, like, they asked him to do something here that I don't think serves the movie very well. <laughs> yeah, it's. I don't think there's. It's when when we ask, um, you know, to what end does this serve? Like, I don't think mm-hmm. there is an end in this movie. You know, I <laughs> I was left wondering at the end of it, like, why. What, what, what was the point? Like, what, what did our characters learn? Yeah, like, what were we as viewers supposed to get out of this experience? Exactly. And I, I don't, I don't want to get into, like, the philosophy behind movie making in general, because, you know, obviously mm-hmm. the whole point is to spend your fucking money and, you know, eat popcorn and stuff. Mm-hmm. But and entertainment isn't, you know, mutually exclusive from, like, purposeful filmmaking, but it's still... You know, I, yeah. I wanted to feel like there was a reason for everything happening and it's everything felt like, you know, happenstance coincidence. It's like people like Michael J. Fox just happened to be in all of these places and then like made three decisions. And then there's a really nice set piece, a really nice string of set pieces and visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, and all that was was just exploring the mythos of this area. And that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's this folklore of these serial killers that are doing these things that or did these terrible things. And then, you know we explore that and then that's really entertaining but ultimately it's like we're left on this cliffside at the end of the movie with michael j fox and um i'm sorry i'm blanking on her name yeah lucy the character there uh, forgettable love interest who over the course of three days forgets about her dead husband and falls in love with michael j fox Um, well she did not like him like i think that part was at least clear like she did not like her husband day after the funeral she's like you wouldn't it wasn't what you'd call a happy marriage yeah. I have to. This is in the script, so it's okay that I bang them later in the movie. Not they, they don't have sex, but um, not on screen at least. Yeah, Otherwise, no. it would have been really bad when you were watching this as a kid. <laughs> I mean, when I think there was the scene where Judge is humping Cleopatra, you know, <laughs> in the movie, and it's it's like okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can we talk about her husband? Because he's one of the weak parts of this movie too. Like he's clearly oh god, absolutely just there so annoying as a plot device, and he's a awful to spend time with like there's no fun in disliking this guy you're just supposed to dislike him mm-hmm. so like we meet him the husband character so we can introduce michael j fox's L- L- character 
Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucy Sedgwick. We like we first meet him so that we can be fully introduced to Michael J. Fox's character. The next time we see him is so we can be introduced to the premise. And the third time after that, he introduces like it's just a little bit more world building as Michael J. Fox kind of explains it around him. Mm-hmm. And then he dies for good this time. And that's just kind of it. Like he is there purely to advance the plot. He is absolutely no fun to spend time with. He's I kind li- of did not like when he was on screen. Yeah, he's literally a specter to Lucy's character. Like he he's this latent figure that like gets killed by he what what is he he gets, he gets his ghost face ripped off when he follows Lucy to that haunted mansion. Yeah, I don't even and remember his death. I'll take your word for it. That's like it's just it's uh, his second death. Sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, it's it not like it matters. I mean, it, yeah. he's a non-character. He's mm-hmm. like you said, he's a plot device, and it he wasn't even entertaining. Um, nothing, yeah. nothing epitomizes that more than the, the scene in that like medieval restaurant or whatever mm-hmm. that was where, uh, Lucy meets with, uh, Michael J. Fox to, she wants to like contact Jay, Ray, whatever. Ray. Yeah. Ray. For, he wants, she wants to see if Michael J. Fox can contact him from the dead. And of course he is there and he's telling Michael mm-hmm. J. Fox what to say. And, you know, immediately she orders wine and then ray goes oh red she'll get red we always got red and she's like white i never much cared for red and then he immediately goes you bitch and it's like okay all right they they could have gone somewhere with this but this is just they're they're, they fully committed to this being a non-character it's not great it's it's not even a good joke he just screams at her exactly He's just like, being obnoxious. The the yeah. only funny part was when Michael J. Fox elbows him in the face. I was like, eh. and that was just yeah, because yeah. It, it was nice to see that happen, not because mm-hmm. it was funny or entertaining. Yeah, but that's like, I didn't laugh at that. And I think that's part of why it's like, he's not even fun to dislike. You mm-hmm. know, like you can add a dislikable character just to see him get like stomped on and, you know, like violated in several different ways sorts of thing. And that, you know, can be fun when it's done right. It's just that like he's there so that we can learn a little bit more about the proceedings and there's no other purpose there. And it's transparent too, right? I mean, well, ghost pun with transparent, <laughs> but um, like it, it, just hide that better. Uh-huh. And I think you have to... Uh, what am I trying to say here? TikTok. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll be here for a while. Um, I think if you want to put a character in the movie that is the conduit for explaining the movie to, you have to give him a purpose later on in the movie. You have to make that be a setup payoff sort of situation. Now, you can have yeah. you know the situation be explained to the audience from the main character two different characters or through different means, right? Like you have to change it up a little bit uh, if you're trying to make that whole thing work. But if you absolutely definitely want to just put in a guy like Ray, who's there to make the audience understand the plot a little bit better, you have to hide that more. Mm -hmm. And there's several different ways you can do that. It's just that this movie did not hide it whatsoever. Exactly. If anything, I kind of called attention to it. Exactly. It's, like you said it, he exists solely to introduce the concept of like the the numbers on the forehead mm-hmm. that uh you know that that's the signifier that that's who's next to die that's just about it um it, if anything he's there to confuse the rules of how ghosts interact with the world because mm-hmm. they can fly in this movie they can also go through any object they want 
in this movie, uh-huh. but they also get hit by cars and get buried by dirt and need help <laughs> from physical humans to like, yeah. I, it, again, like it's just, he's a non-character and he's there to explain a handful of concepts in the movie and then just make everything else murky. It, it just felt like a waste of time. Yeah. So like, this is a thing that I see in a lot of TV pilots um, nowadays, especially like high concept ones where need explaining, like you introduce a character who's like the newcomer to the world. He mm-hmm. acts as he or she acts as the audience conduit. And, you know, like, so that like your co-lead or whoever's around there with them can explain them that world. You even see it in like great shows like uh, Mad Men in the pilot where Peggy's yep. learning the ropes of the office and the yep. office politics and how it but, works. And then Mad between- Men is smart because it doesn't open with her you open with Don Draper in the diner and like the reason that something like Mad Men works and where some of these shows do succeed while using that trope where others just completely fail is that you have to build something out of that mm-hmm. right like if it's the newcomer like okay well like what don't they understand even after being told it yet right like what misses like what assumptions are they making like how can they use their own inexperience to like bring something new to the movie after the premise sort of thing. You know, like it, there's a variety of different ways you can go. And I'm just repeating myself at this point, but this is a common trope now. So I think like maybe it stands out a little bit more to a modern audience in 2019 than it did sure. in 96. But at the same time, like it's hard not to notice how they really could have written themselves out of this particular hole, uh, as well as a couple others that happened they, in the first half of the movie. There's a lot of handholding in the first half oh, of the yeah. movie like there's it, it opens with um jesus what does it open with you it opens with one of the murders i think something like that oh man i, I can't even I remember, can't even remember. Like, I, <laughs> I watched this movie last night I, I watched it this morning like mediocre and or forgotten like it's already leaving <laughs> my brain mm-hmm. but uh, but you've got um you got voiceover from a uh, from a reporter like, there are so many characters in the first half of the movie that exist just to die that's it yeah you and know, I don't it, mind that. Actually, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, a pretty yeah. solid setup for me. Like, I yeah. can appreciate that you're bothering to give these characters an identity mm-hmm. that adds to the, like, atmosphere of the movie sure. before they serve, like, their, you know, plot purpose, too. Sure. Like, if I, they're just going to die after that scene, like, give me something that adds to the movie, right? Like, the best mm-hmm. horror example I can think of is the opening of Scream, which sure. I'm sure, Murph, you're at least aware of, even if you're not as big a horror fan as I am. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a huge horror fan, but yeah. Um, but like, like in that Blair. scene, um, spoiler alert, like you introduced Drew Barrymore's character in the first scene of the movie. <laughs> and yeah, the whole point is that like, she dies at the end of that first scene. It's meant to surprise the audience because her face was like the biggest on all the posters and she was first billed. Um, but what it does do even after serving that narrative function or before serving that narrative function, excuse me, is like making sure that people understand like the world of that movie within that scene. And that's why I think like that is like brilliant and just like mm-hmm. greatly written and everything. And something like this is just okay. Sure. Because it's fine. It serves its purpose. Nothing breaks. Like there's no breakdowns or anything. I don't mind that like the whole ghost rules were, you know, somewhat inconsistent. Oh, sure. Because sure. It never like explicitly stated what they were anyway, so exactly. I didn't mind. Um, exactly. And I it's not like, it's not like they me. betray like they they have those exposition yeah. dumps at the beginning. It's not like they go back and renege any of that. Yeah, yeah. I so, only and, mind and when all you of lie it informs me. like that last mm-hmm. showdown in the sanitarium. So yeah, like I mean, there's just like I don't want to say that this is the work of a writer who's still figuring things out because 
you know, like Peter Jackson's best regarded movie in the 90s had already come out two years earlier in Heavenly Creatures. Mm -hmm. And he wrote that with Fran Walsh also. So, you know, like these are two people who know how to write a good script. It's just yeah, that yeah, like, this one doesn't fully come together. And that's why, like, I'm still struggling to think of what my rating is going to be. Normally I have this I am too. before we uh, sure. actually start recording our podcast episode but right now I've, <laughs> I've got nothing so far it's okay I'll figure so it out. there's one of the reviews uh todd mccarthy for variety 96 mm -hmm. um here's he says that the story was originally conceived as an episode of tales from the crypt yep that makes a lot of sense yeah <laughs> so we're in agreement okay not yeah. much else to say about that i guess yeah. um yeah i mean i guess i'll expand on why that makes sense to me just a little bit sure. i guess um because i could see this functioning as just a 30 or 60 minute episode of an anthology that's based around supernatural horror uh i don't think that this story necessarily needed to be how long was it 110 minutes the, yeah, i get why this it was literally i don't think uh, yeah. it was long uh, I think there was enough material there to justify stretching out that base idea to feature length. And, mm. you know, like it added stuff to the core premise. Uh, it definitely twisted that premise around and made different plots out of it in that uh, third act, which I really liked. Mm. But, you know, like, yeah, had this just been, you know, 30 or 60 minutes, I wouldn't feel like I was missing anything either. Yeah, I, I feel like the, the Tale from the Crypt episode was probably less about this you know the the con man frank type deal yeah exactly and and more about um the the grim reaper being like the ghost of a killer from yeah. back in the day type deal i mean you mm -hmm. you get a 30 minute episode or 25 with like commercials or whatever you get you know mm -hmm. a significant chunk of, of voiceover at the beginning and the end to you know introduce you and then to give you your moral for the story and then that's it i think that make a pretty good episode <laughs> but mm -hmm. this yeah, even could have been like a like a part of like a creep show anthology too, or something like that. Yeah. Those definitely. are basically the same thing, but <laughs> it's really no weird. Difference. Like this, there are so many elements to this that would make a great goosebump goosebumps book. Mm -hmm. Like it's got that goofy kind of like, Ooga booga, like RL Stein uh -huh. style, you know, just creepy theatrics. But, uh -huh. um, yeah, it's, it's not like this movie wasn't stuffed to the brim with ideas. Mm hmm. You know, I, I, again, I don't think that they coalesced into anything, you know, worthwhile or worth examining to be, you know, uh, plot wise, but mm. you know, it's, it's, you had a million and one characters, you had a million and one things going on, uh, characterizations. You kind of had to rely on the physicality of the actor to sell the character more than anything else, which mm. kind of leads me into what I want to talk about. Uh, next which is mainly mm -hmm. michael j fox's performance in this movie oh yeah that was one of my final points too so let's go for it sure um not bad i guess yeah. mm -hmm. not bad uh i just i don't think he like i just did he didn't feel like a character to me mm -hmm. if that yeah, makes sense and, and that that's on the writing i think is that Definitely. like it never really gets into the specifics of who frank is or like why he's doing certain things like we don't understand his motivations really or mm -hmm. his whole thing basically right like there's no angle to him that this movie's taking and i think that's a problem but i think like in terms of the acting michael j fox sells everything pretty well except for one key element which is the only drawback sure. of his performance which is 
don't think he sells the visual aspects of this movie, especially the transitions very well. How so that that scene where, uh, yeah, as we talked about earlier, when they're in the uh, mental hospital and okay. it's going back and forth between his, you know, reacting to like the flashback basically and like mm. wandering through modern time. I think that there needed to be a little more clarity in his performance so that like we could tell that he knew or didn't know what was happening to him. Instead, we were kind of trying to figure that yeah. out as it went on. There, there um, was this there I, just to elaborate on that for just a second. It's he never seemed to know what was going on yeah. in that last 30 minutes. He, he was just reacting to what was happening right in front of him at that mm-hmm. very second. But it's not like he ever it's not like it ever clicked for him that he's just like, oh, this is what's happening. It was just like, yeah. hey, here's a, like it's Bartlett shows up with a gun like four times and quote it or like air quotes shoots him through the chest. And he, every yeah. time he gets spooked, it's like, oh, gosh, I just got shot. And it's like, oh, yeah, but, you know, this isn't real. You know, this is a flashback or he sees someone about to get shot in the flashback and he dives in front of them to take the bullet. Yeah. But it doesn't work because it's yeah. not real. Yeah. And he keeps doing these things. <laughs> And it's yeah. like, you know that this is a flash, but like, are you even here? Mm-hmm. So know? like, yeah, just like make it clearer and you have to sell this better, like what the effect of that is. And I think that that's why that scene showed potential sure. for being really good, but ultimately could have done better by like, like I said earlier, by like somebody like Tim Burton, who's very clear about that sort of thing. Like this goes back and forth and it's not fully on Michael J. Fox, especially in this scene. And I don't even know mm-hmm. If that aspect of his performance that I think is a drawback is entirely his fault either, because I don't know in what order this was shot in. Sure. Basically. So like (laughs) if it was very clear what he was supposed to be seeing, then like, you know, like, okay, that's probably on him. But if they were jumping back and forth, um, you know, doing things out of order or some other thing, like there, maybe there wasn't like the right sort of onset continuity for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then it can be on the production team partially as well. But like, other than this, I thought he was pretty good. It's just that like, this was something that really stood out to me. And I think that like, in order to make this movie more emotional, you needed to get more out of that performance in those key scenes. Yeah, this this role for him was more just just physical. That was it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. there was one the only time that he really had to emote, I guess, other than being surprised or a little angry, perturbed, um, was when Milton was grilling him at the police station. And Milton's kind of like planting seeds that maybe all of this is happening in in Michael J. Fox's head. Like maybe he really mm-hmm. is the killer and he's just mm-hmm. sitting there shaking and the film decides to do nothing with that at all. Instead, mm-hmm. it turns into like this little bit of comedy thing where Milton thinks that Michael J. Fox is trying to stop his heart with his mind. And he's like, OK, this yeah. is the direction the movie wants to go. That's fine. So uh-huh. I think you're right that it's it's kind of like it's two pronged where, you know, Michael J. Fox's character like objectively isn't given enough to do or like isn't mm-hmm. fleshed out enough in this movie. He's kind mm-hmm. of a, just a reactionary element of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, things happen to him rather than him. Do. He's a passive character, I think. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's it's, you know, he's he's completely game. But I don't know. It's just wasted. But whatever. 
And it's yeah, not yeah. like he isn't fun to watch. Like when when mm-hmm. he has to when he becomes a ghost several times and he needs to do something physical, he sells it completely. When he gets yeah. frozen in but the he's freezer, he's a good actor. Yeah, I mean, he when, just is. <laughs> yeah, when when he gets frozen in the freezer and it's very obvious that everything's just you know makeup and special effects, he's sitting there. He's like he changes the way his voice works and he's like. <gasps> You gotta find the guy. It's Bartlett. I didn't kill him. And it, he's he sells it. Everything he sells it. But I'm I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, R- uh, ran, God, random. I, just, yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. So I think we're in agreement on this. Like he's pretty good. We've definitely both seen Michael J. Fox be better in other projects. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to tell whether or not like his performance only being okay instead of all the way good is because of him or because of script elements or on set things that might have happened. But yeah, I, I mean, he carries this movie well enough. Uh, he's definitely above the replacement level to borrow a baseball advanced stats term there, which <laughs> I think should apply to more things. Sure. But yeah, he's fine. He does a good job. I think the acting pretty much across the board is good by itself. We always talk about, a lot about how with movies that like have performances that are clearly like either like way higher in energy or like way different from what everybody else is doing. And we say that they're acting in a different movie than everybody else. (laughs) That's not the case here at all. Even though you do have the guy in Jeffrey Combs, who's acting way, way, way up over everybody else too. But it's like the characters in the movie are aware of it, which I think makes a difference. That too. And also like, it's all cohesive. Like it all builds to this atmosphere that like hey this is kind of cartoony mm-hmm. in a way like you know everybody is just kind of weird yeah. and you know like they've all been touched by like this like terrible violence in some way and their response to it is just like oh. <laughs> to, like lose their mind in bizarre ways right Not, it's, it's like, the cop it's it's literally just the, yeah. the chief of police walking like huh, oh that's odd like at the mm-hmm. end of the movie doesn't he he's like oh well i guess bartlett's ghost is gone now huh i think we should do a book deal <laughs> and he, Michael J. Fox is like, oh, why don't you talk to your partner, which is the ghost of Milton sitting in the car. Yeah. And the guy turns around and he's like, oh, there's no one there. Ho, ho, ho. And just decides to go, even though Michael J. Fox broke multiple like laws throughout the movie. Like misdemeanor and commission of a felony. Yeah, it's OK. Re- it's OK. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless of who was actually killing people, like he broke multiple other laws he had like a shootout he he assaulted multiple police officers kidnapped somebody like all of these are crimes but you know whatever (laughs) that's that's irrelevant i guess but still Uh, so the i guess one of the final things if not the final thing that i wanted to ask before we head to our little mini games at the end of the episode i have a question that i really want to know the answer to sure is the movie itself weird or is what happens in the third act, that weirdness, just the natural endpoint of what this premise is? Uh, define the premise, and I'll try and answer the question. Yeah. So, like, if the idea here is that this is a movie about a guy who can see ghosts helping to stop a serial killer ghost with the help of his ghost friends, is the ending with all these, like, weird turns the natural endpoint of like that premise just being carried out or is the movie itself weird? I'm going to say that the movie itself is weird mm-hmm. because okay. The ending, like the premise that you 
the premise that it, it introduces, like it does wrap up. Um, mm-hmm. It's just in the middle of the movie, it kind of ignores it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So like if you introduce a, a con man who uses his powers to reach out to the supernatural or the paranormal and solve an old murder mystery or, or solve a, a current murder mystery, mm-hmm. you know, based off of a, a ghost that came back from hell. Yeah. Um, it, it does that. You know, it's it's got all of the those type of blockbuster beats where you've got the two cohorts uh, who sacrifice themselves at a certain point in the movie to help our protagonist reach his goal. Um, when mm-hmm. Michael J. Fox goes to heaven, he gets his little reunion there, and then you see the bad guy get burned up and everything. Like, it does mm-hmm. everything it sets out to do. It just doesn't feel like any of it's in service of anything. So mm-hmm. what we kind of fall back on are these, like, kind of this this barrel of of eccentricities Mm -hmm. and that to me just kind of makes the movie weird so it's like Mm -hmm. weird visuals um weird sound effects weird characters um things getting introduced just kind of dropping off that sort of thing i i I would say the movie is weird pleasantly weird it it didn't didn't bother me it doesn't mean bad it yeah. just means it's like, oh, that's like, you know, inspired or, oh, that's different. Like yeah. the example that I use for like, oh, no, that's a weird movie. That's not the natural continuation yeah. of the premise is like Hancock, sure. which I don't know if you remember Hancock, sure. but that, told, like, that, that got that, bizarre. It was like it, it, uh, it definitely didn't fit its its marketing. Yeah. Uh, it's like, okay, you've got a Jason Bateman quirky, like kind of comedy duo with Will Smith. And then at the end, it's Charlize Theron and Will Smith, like these two titans fighting over this like uh unrequited love or something like that and it's like what is happening right now uh, i think this movie avoids that yeah yeah so so i think that just about wraps up our talk about the actual movie itself so why don't we move ahead to what our uh god we need a name for this segment mini games let's go with mini games the mini Murph. games the okay who's, games who's your mvp of the frighteners um i'm i'm gonna say jeffrey combs okay just just because he was the most committed it was he was he was the weirdest part of a weird movie um Mm -hmm. michael j fox was kind of i mean he was playing the straight man so it makes sense that he was kind of the straight man throughout the whole movie yeah um that's that's not like a flaw um Mm -hmm. it just for me like even if i didn't find milton particularly funny at times Mm-hmm. it's i just if they're gonna go weird they just were weird like it mm-hmm. didn't seem like there was anything motivating his character he was just bizarre <laughs> and i was like okay i'm fine with that like it's mm-hmm. if that's a product of the 90s like you said sure whatever <laughs> yeah. it's there and I, sure i was mm-hmm. i was just completely game for his character um him throwing his uh, his his shirt open and he's wearing you can't stop my heart with your mind because i'm wearing a lead plated yeah, yeah. body armor it's like what yeah. <laughs> it, it yeah i um that's my MVP. yeah no I, I i like jeffrey combs a lot too like in this it just that sort of performance doesn't do anything for me, so I can't like sure, him sure. as much as that. And I know it's not his fault because that's clearly yeah. what they were maybe, asking of maybe him. Maybe I but, just yeah. admire his commitment to the role. And I can do I just, that. Yeah. yeah, the guy's always in. I like Jeffrey Combs. He's sure. quite good. Uh, my MVP is the visual effects. I think that they're 
good. Fair. I think that they're useful. I think that they're evocative and I think they're creative. I like Ex- that. Excellent um, synergy between practical and digital effects. Yeah. And I wouldn't say it's quite iconic, but it's got that like image of, you know, like the guy's face or body or whatever poking out of the walls that has been copied over and over since like that was used as one point um at one point as like godsmack cover art for their (laughs) albums and i'm just like oh Um, but you still see that image in horror like from this decade i can't remember the name of it uh but there's another movie where there's like a beige-ish wall and there's like some guy who's like you know pressing up against it and you can see the outline of his face and body um it came out at the beginning of this decade i don't remember the movie because i never saw it but like you see this image recur and as far as i know the frighteners made it famous and notable and i think that's just like another good aspect of like the visual effects and the look of this movie like the particulars of the look of this movie uh being quite good that they're able to recur throughout uh certain other elements of pop culture like that true the visual effects just to put a point on that like mm-hmm. i'll agree it's it's they were they 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 felt like they were in service of something whereas yeah. the plot didn't um mm-hmm. but the visual effects especially specifically the digital effects were not superfluous in any way mm-hmm. you know it, it never felt excessive or i don't know it, it, it never betrayed the aesthetic of the movie I, I i agree i agree with what you said you were far more eloquent in your breakdown of it but yeah who is your LVP of the Frighteners? Ooh. Who or what, I suppose. Who or what? We can always do what. I'm going to go with the pacing. Uh, it, there, There's a lot of... It's not necessarily that it was over-edited in the first half of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's just it felt so breathless, like ramping up into the plot. Um, I don't think anybody stayed in one place for more than a few seconds or more than a scene or two. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's... That that whole the the longest scene in the first half of the movie is the dinner scene between Lucy and Frank, mm-hmm. and that's that's where we get like the the like yeah multiple camera angles you got cuts back and forth you have an actual dialogue taking place between two characters that isn't you know that doesn't start with exposition and then end with a character going to another location. Honestly, it's just like the pacing in the first half of the movie I felt really acted to the detriment of the movie as a whole because it never slowed down to like really establish what aside from like the general premise it didn't establish what the movie was about Mm -hmm. the moral i guess uh, for lack of a better way of saying it but Mm -hmm. the the emptiness that i felt at the end of the movie i feel like we can trace back to the beginning of the movie and to be clear like that's not like the good emptiness that's just like oh that's hollow (laughs) emptiness yes definitely Mm -hmm. so uh my lvp is one of my least favorite like plot setups okay. uh, it like little subplots or angles to take with the story and that is when there's a supernatural movie and you spend like 20 percent of it on like oh the cops don't believe me or like oh the people in power don't believe me like yeah. if you want to make a story about that make a story about that it can sure. be good when you're just spending like enough time on it to get out of it mm-hmm. then it stinks because they we know what's eventually going to happen. It doesn't matter, like, anything that happens within that. And so, like, you know, if the villain is the cop, that's fine. Like, if it's just uh, Milton Dammers, Jeffrey Combs, like, that's fine. It's the cops not believing him. 
that like even though the audience knows that like he's right and we still have to deal with this for a little bit now that's one of my least favorite plot setups sure. in all of uh like pop cinema i guess is the way i want to put it sure. uh, it also leads to what i think is the least realistic scene in this movie and that's when the cops fire off 40 rounds at like an unarmed white suspect <laughs> there's there's not a lot of internal logic when it comes to this movie like it's it, this movie does not bother laying ground rules it, it doesn't bother elaborating on on much aside from just like basic basic plot you know like when it comes to like the rules mm -hmm. of the world the action itself feels very grounded bizarrely compared to like how like the rules of of characters and like specters and all these things operating within a particular space and i know that that's like a really wordy way of describing what i'm trying to say but it, there's there's like a lapse in consistency between certain things like how would the cops believe that frank is is right like if frank is the only person who can see ghosts like yeah. how would they be able to believe him oh well they would believe him because uh the paranormal can affect objects they, they may not mm -hmm. be able to see the ghosts but you know you can see i don't know coffins moving or yeah. or a mummy coming back to life and yet that they don't address that the, the cops who see that they shoot they shoot at the mummy <laughs> well that mummy, part is at least accurate yes <laughs> they, they shoot before wondering what's going on um <laughs> and then after they have shot they don't ponder on what they have just shot yeah. uh <laughs> they shoot a middle easterner who's already dead that is the most accurate moment <laughs> in all of the frighteners all right good job jim we did it yeah the uh, sailing <laughs> is down um god jesus and, broke into like, his own sarcophagus yeah like the cops don't serve a purpose in this yeah. movie mm -hmm. and that's like my whole thing is that like yeah you can get something out of that idea like you mm -hmm. can introduce that into your movie and get something out of it you can't just do it as like a temporary tertiary plot obstacle yeah, it's it's a hindrance it's and that's it's boring. it mm -hmm. Like, not it's, only do yeah. we know what the effects is and why they're wrong, and, like, it's like it's clear that it's ultimately not going to matter what he says to them in order to get out of it. Exactly. Like, you can either do it for, like, 30 seconds or 90 minutes. Yes. There's no in-between. <laughs> it won't work at any other length. Yeah, the, the only, like, law enforcement guy, like Milton, the FBI agent, he was the only person who needed to, like that was set up in such a way where he could have been convinced. Like he was obviously the most antagonistic of anybody uh, mm -hmm. regarding the police and all that nonsense. Like the police were just these bumbling presences in the movie that just got in the mm -hmm. way. Um, yep. But Milton was the one that like, you know, you as a viewer feel like needed to be convinced that, you know, mm -hmm. there were specters and ghosts operating and, you know, it was a, it was a, mm -hmm. a ghost of a previous serial killer that was, you know, squeezing the hearts of all these people in the town. Mm hmm but they just blow his head off. Yeah. And he was the only one who would have been able to properly convince the rest of the police force of what was going on. So like mm -hmm. after the scene in the sanitarium, you, you get that again, a really weird scene where Lucy and Frank are just on this like hillside outside his almost completed house. And the cop comes up and is like, Hey, we should get a book deal. All these, you know, ghost stuff happened. And it's like, how do you know who told you that this is what happened? Mm -hmm. it, it just, I, there's 
the, the movie doesn't stop to try and answer that question. It doesn't mm-hmm. even bother, you know, thinking about it. It just ends. Yeah. Uh-huh. And like I said, I mean, like, I have no problem with the Dammer's character, at least like in terms of plot concept, because he's a villain and not an obstacle. And mm-hmm. that's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I mean, like, we've seen this done well for a, like a while, like the whole, uh, oh, they don't believe me sort of thing. Like, not to keep bringing up Wes Craven, but A Nightmare on Elm Street does this really well. Mm-hmm. And it like not only that, but like it sets it up so that like it seems like you're going to get annoyed with it. And then it provides a little twist at the end that adds depth to the movie. So, like, yeah, like, you don't have to do it like that here, but you can't do what you did. And that just sums up the bulk of my problems with this movie is that, like, okay, these aren't necessarily bad ideas. It's just that they're executed poorly. Sure. And then there's the fun stuff, too, which makes it okay. But I guess that leads <laughs> us into uh, probably our most difficult question of the minigame segment. Murph, what's your rating for the Frighteners? Oh, God. I'm this is tough. It it actually is really tough because there like I said earlier there are a lot of things that I enjoy about this movie but I don't think it amounted to much. Mm-hmm. You know, like I definitely don't regret having seen this and oh, like yeah, absolutely. You know, I, or or at least seeing it with, you know, the 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 <laughs> cognizance of being an adult. Yeah, how um, many times did you see this as a kid? I uh my uncle was the one who showed it to me for the first time and I think it was like Jesus, how old was I? He showed it to me like back in, it was on VHS. So mm-hmm. it was maybe the like 2001, 2002. So I was like first, mm-hmm. second grade. And mm-hmm. he gave it to us on VHS and I watched it a bunch uh, when I was a kid. But I, I don't remember, I didn't remember a mm-hmm. lot of it when yeah, I finally yeah, watched yeah. it. Um, I remembered like fleeting images. Like I knew mm-hmm. that there were some ghosts and uh, that he was conning people. But mm-hmm. the specifics, not at all. Didn't remember any of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, what, yeah, rating. What, yeah. <laughs> I think I think I'm gonna because I I'm stuck in the middle. I'm gonna give it like a middling score. Um, so two and a half specter humps out of five. <laughs> um, I think I'm pretty much in the same spot you are. It's it's not that there isn't stuff that I didn't enjoy. It's that I feel like I just enjoyed it. You know, like, I can't say, like, oh, I like that. Like, oh, I really like that mm. or anything like that. The stuff that I liked, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm on board. You know, it yeah. was pleasurable, amiable, uh, all those words. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> there was it asked me to go along with some stuff that I outright did not like. So, yeah, I think, like, that's a long-winded way of saying that I'm also two and a half out of five, just right yeah. down the middle. Totally neutral. I wouldn't seek it out again, but I wouldn't not recommend it if you were mm. interested in watching this movie. Um, just, you know, just fine. Yeah, if, if you're a huge fan of, like, Peter Jackson, this mm-hmm. isn't necessarily his best work. Like, for, for like the, that <laughs> No, weird... no, no, this is much better than The Lord of the Rings. What are you talking about? <laughs> Those are classic, but The Frighteners. Um, yeah, this is, it's just, it's kind of like just a blip on the Peter Jackson radar. You know, mm-hmm. like it's just it's just something that he did. And that's kind of it. And I think that mm-hmm. you could say that for everyone who was involved with this movie. It's just, it's just it just exists. So it's like if you want to check it out, go ahead. I'm not necessarily going to recommend it. It's not like it's mm-hmm. bad. It's I mean, it's, it's just there. Like if, if you're watching it, like, yeah, finish it. But, you know, if you don't have to, maybe don't. <laughs> Yeah, it's not exactly like the best way to spend two hours, but like, hey, like if you're interested in this type of movie or whatever it might be, 
like if you're interested in this at all having heard about it like mm -hmm. yeah sure go ahead and watch it it's it's not unpleasurable you know like it's mm -hmm. yeah we will be repeating ourselves at this point it's yeah. fine it's I, fine I you think, can watch I think it you I've, can get I've, got, this movie. Uh, I've got gene siskel's review up yeah. here obviously prominent movie reviewer in the 90s he says it's a dreary, needlessly violent and ugly comic thriller about a psychic hustler who gets more than he bargained for with his latest scam. Fox seems to be trying to get hip in the movies and he's lost his way here. So there's that. But Roger, <laughs> Roger Ebert said last year, I reviewed a nine hour documentary about the lives of Mongolian yak herdsmen. And I would rather see that again than sit through the Frighteners. <laughs> so, God, I missed them both. <laughs> right? So it's like, it's, it's either, it seems like you'll either like dislike this movie or it's meh. It's, it's fine. Yeah. Every East Asian documentary is like five hours long. So I commiserate with Ebert's uh, <laughs> understanding. It's like, yeah, nine hours on Mongolian yak herders. Like, yeah. <laughs> that that adds up. Um, so before we get to the quiz on okay. next week's movie, which I have picked out, and I will be seeing what their Murph can guess on the hints that I give him, I wanted to read off the box office info real quick because I yeah, thought this ahead. was kind of interesting. Um, so like one of the big reasons that Jackson didn't trust the studio and thought they did a bad job with the marketing is that they released it. Uh, they released it up against Independence Day which was in its third week and like was obviously <laughs> going to be huge, but also like the Frighteners went out in the middle of July. <laughs> he was like, doesn't this make, he was like, we should release this, you know, near Halloween. You know, it's a horror movie. This will get the horror fans in their seats. Let's put it out like first week of October, maybe, you know, like maybe last week of October, something in those lines, you know, not up against anything that's obviously going to be huge. And like studios were just like, no, you can release a movie at any time. Right. Like you can just release a movie whenever you want. It's fine. We don't have to look at the schedule. It's just so <laughs> strange to me. Like, so I mean, Frighteners finishes yeah. fifth uh, that weekend uh, behind. Unsurprisingly, um, yeah. All it does at least lead um, new movies that weekend, but the finishers ahead of it included Independence Day, of course, mm -hmm. Phenomenon, Courage Under Fire, The Nutty Professor, and its fourth week. But on the bright side, it does beat out by five hundred thousand dollars each of Fled, Multiplicity, and Kazam. A huge weekend at theaters <laughs> the 90s were a wonderful time yeah <laughs> i miss them all right are you ready to see if you can guess next week's movie or next episode's movie who knows when this will come out <laughs> right yes sure hit me all right hint number one this movie was released this decade let's Good to know. <laughs> so after after 2010. Yeah, okay. yeah. I wanted to see if you could guess it based on that, because honestly, you would have had to be clairvoyant, and that would have been really impressive. And I would like to know that if you are. What if? What, I, I just want to know, like, what your reaction would be if I did just like straight up guess the movie. I don't know. Uh, I thought that would have been rather implausible, so I haven't prepared myself for that. Uh, okay, but it was released between 2010 and 2019. Yeah, and uh, you know we haven't done any movies since, um, or I, we don't have any movies since I think before uh, or after 2014. So first half of this decade, well, yeah, can even it, narrow it down. I a think little bit. Oblivion was the most recent one that. Yeah, we did. that's the most recent we've done. So yeah, I'll say that's from 2010 to 2013. 
to give you a nice little scope of years there. Um, okay. It, number two, it is an R-rated horror movie. Oh, it's a horror movie. Yeah, not a not a uh, horror comedy. No. Okay, horror it, film. like like slasher or like oh, paranormal. Like I'm not gonna tell you that yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's fair. Okay, <laughs> more questions. Um, but yeah, it is a horror film. Um, hint number three. Okay, it was made on a one million dollar budget and it made thirty seven point two million. This isn't Paranormal Activity, is it? Oh no, no, that was made for like uh like fifty thousand. Oh, okay, okay. This is a studio movie. Um, And it did well, but not like impressively well. Like it just made a ton of money for its budget. Okay. Um, So it's a a studio movie. At least as far as I know, like you get a million dollars, it must be a studio. Yeah. Um, So don't look too far into that. I'm just assuming. Okay, okay. But Um, it's not not like a a cult favorite or or anything like that. It's not like, uh, like trauma or anything like that where it's like made for like you know like super on the cheap and just super you know over the top and gory or whatever like it's it got a big release um hint number four critics called it insensitive and one charity called it disgusting hmm yeah now they're getting interesting huh hostile not hostile nope Uh, am i am i in the right neighborhood with that type of type of movie like eli roth-esque you know violence for the sake of violence it could also be a rob zombie movie yeah i I can't necessarily tell you uh that just yet because i want to see how much you can narrow it down it's not hostile um hint number five one of the lead actors is a forgotten teen pop star like if we did a music version of this podcast this guy would be up there aaron something not Aaron Carter, if that's who you're thinking of. Damn it. Okay. But definitely a similar type of singer to him. Okay. Um, hint number six. Let's say that there is a reason I am picking this movie right now. I won't tell you what that reason is. But there's a reason that I'm picking this movie now with regards to somewhat relevant timing. Is it political in nature? The reason that you're, you're picking it now? No, it's not political. Huh. Does it have to do with the fact that maybe something regarding global warming, some kind of natural Hint disaster? Number seven. <laughs> Hint number seven. This movie so is vague. not set in America. It is not set in America. I'm, I'm, I'll clarify. I'm, it's not set in North America. So, like, I didn't mean that as just, like, you know, the United States. Like, it's different continent. And it's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. How, how, how many how many hints uh, did you write down? How close? Uh, am I, I have that? nine. That was number seven. Damn. Okay. Well, what's what's eight? Okay, number eight. This movie could be called a delayed disaster movie. Is it Apocalypto? It is not Apocalypto. Ah. Would you like hint number nine? Yes. To finish it off, its Wikipedia page links to. List of films about nuclear issues. Does it have to do with Chernobyl? <laughs> this is Chernobyl Diaries, the 2012 ah! horror movie produced by Oren Pelly, the producer and director of the first Paranormal Activity. It stars, okay. or at least co-stars, Jesse McCartney, 
who is not Jesse a good actor. McCartney. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh. And yes, in case you're wondering at home, I absolutely am picking this movie to piggyback off of the success of the Chernobyl miniseries, because if there's anything more forgotten and mediocre about the movies, it's when they shamelessly try to uh, capitalize <laughs> off of something that happened in the news or on TV. <laughs> It's all about it's all about drumming up engagement, guys. You got to understand the position that we're in. Look, I am shamelessly doing this to capitalize on the success of somebody else's creative work. I am I have no other reason for choosing it other than that, but I think it's thematically relevant. Sure. Uh, this is a movie I've seen before. It's not very good, but I'm hoping we get better ratings next week. <laughs> one of one of these weeks, I'm going to guess the movie. One of them. Yeah, you, you've guessed it both times. For my, I need to be. I need to like harden up my 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 line of quit, my my hints. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to give this one. Like, you should get at least half credit for this week. Sure. Like you said Chernobyl. <laughs> I was like, well, that's basically it. Like, it's, it's two it's to point five. Movie. That's the that's the score between the two of us right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's true. It's just like I can't think of another Chernobyl movie. Like. Yeah, it's I gotta can, be I it, can. right? Like, yeah, this is the Chernobyl movie. Yeah, you got it right. I could, even, I'll give you like, like eight tenths of a point, if that works. Like, it's not just half. Like, you deserve partial credit. Like, more to work the whole than the half. Sure. One. one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of That Was Okay. I guess we'll be back with another movie next week that's going to be mediocre and forgotten, both of them. Until then, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. We'll be back next week. My name's Ben Tucker. Mine has been Murphy. And this has been That Was Okay, I guess.